It's time for Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM. Welcome to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. 106.5 Toronto, 95.7 Ottawa. Also on the iHeartRadio app. Download the app. Take us with you and listen to us anywhere you go. It's a real pleasure to welcome back to Moment of Truth, Sarah Milroy, Chief Curator at the McMichael Canadian Art Collection in in Kleinberg, Ontario. And uh, actually, Sarah was on during the summer talking about some events that were happening. Well, she's back because there's more exciting stuff going on. And, <laughs> and, and maybe to elaborate on some of those things we also spoke about. So, Sarah, welcome back to the show. Oh, it's great to be back. Well, we have a big, the big mother of all shows. We are um, presenting an exhibition called Uninvited, Canadian Women Artists in the Modern Moment. Mm -hmm. And the show is really, (laughs) it's a monster. It's uh, almost 40, you know, different writers in the catalog. It is a, a, a large roster of uh, women artists that were working in the period of the 1920s and 30s primarily, although yes. there are a few straggling dates on either side of that. Mm-hmm. But um, the the point of the show is to take a look at, at women artists who were active in the period when Canadian art was really defined popularly in the imagination by the group of seven and the white male artists of the day. Yes. And, um, of course, the group of seven is what I'm referring to, and that is... You know, at, at McMichael, we hold an, an extraordinarily deep and spectacular collection of the Group of Seven and, and their contemporaries, David mm-hmm. Milne, Emily Carr, and so on. Those are a well-known um, part of our collection. Um, but this exhibition really focuses on the women artists that were their contemporaries at that time who are making very different kinds of works, um, including Indigenous women makers from this period who were... Uh, in some cases, continuing traditional um, cultural practices in their art making. In other cases, they were making objects for trade into the new settler economy mm. and you know, trying to find their way forward mm. um, through through you know bringing their um, their work that had been made ancestrally um, into the marketplace, which is of course was never something that was contemplated by mm-hmm. um, indigenous peoples in the generations before them. So it's, you know, it's a complex show because it has many kinds of Canadian women in it and they're right. all, you know, they're all there. So all those different narratives are kind of woven together. Yeah. As you were talking there, I couldn't help but think how exciting that must have been for you uh, to look at all this work going through that. And and being that you said, like, it's it's 100 years and, uh, and, and you're looking at that time frame. Mm. What jumped out at you, if anything, uh, looking at the women and their backgrounds and where they were coming from that you think you one yeah. either you found interesting or you think that that an audience looking at this might want to look for well you know one of the distinctive things about the women artists of this period is you know the men that we were referring to in the group of seven mm. you know they were all involved with commercial illustration mm. um they were right. they were trained a lot of them had had been to art art school in mm you know, here in Canada or, you know, in Europe in some cases, but they really came to their fine art practices via uh, commercial illustration. And Mm. that, that I think gives an orientation towards art making that is different in Mm. terms of, 
you know, what is the market? Sure. And, you know, uh, obviously these paintings are, are deeply heartfelt, but they're framed within the context of being received. Yes. I wonder, you know, when I look at the diversity and the radicality of the women artists at this time, whether or not they you know, we're in, in a sense liberated by not having that the expectation necessarily of selling the work to support families or, you know, um, uh, le- you know, lead households. They were making work um, that, you know, may or may not have had an audience. And there is a sense of, um, like, you know, an exploration of the self mm-hmm. that could be, you know, could be a, an aspect of that sociological, you know, issue, or it could just be their own inclination. They also have completely different interests in subject matter. But the men artists who prevailed in the day were really obsessed with this idea of wilderness, which, of course, we know is a, fa- is a settler fantasy mm. because these lands were not wilderness to indigenous people. They were right. home <laughs> and they were settled lands. Sure. Um, but, you know, the group of seven, you know, ha- I think have taken a bit of a beating over the past several decades for this sort of assumption of a kind of virgin wilderness. Yeah. And this, this became a kind of a credo in the group. Um, the women didn't seem to have any interest in that idea at all. And I, I don't think it's just because they couldn't travel with as much freedom as the men could. I think it's because they were interested in, in people. They were interested in portraits. They were interested in the city. Um, as a subject, they were interested in social issues um, like poverty and, you know, during the Depression, you know, homeless people in the streets. I mean, mm. when you see, you know, when you see some of this work in this show, you kind of see the dark side of the moon of, mm. you know, the kind of rosy view of, of Canada that that is perpetuated in the paintings of the Group of Seven, beautiful as they are. And the the other big thing you notice when you look at women from across the country, I'm talking about settler women in this case, is there what I really truly see as a respectful and courteous interest in Indigenous women and the things that they made. So, you know, it's it's not just Emily Carr um, who is taking an interest in, in, in Indigenous culture. It's Nora Brown in Alberta, you know, and it's uh, Winifred Petchy Marsh, who was a missionary's wife in Arviat at Eskimo Point. Mm. She's a very interesting example because she was trained as an artist in London, mm. and then um, she married and moved to, to uh, Arviat, which was then called Eskimo Point. And God bless her husband, he used to stick notes up all over the house saying, remember, you were first and foremost an artist, <laughs> which we love him for. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, you know, she used to deliver babies and pull teeth and all that. But when she wasn't <laughs> busy with that, she made these exquisite watercolors of um, that community and of the land around it and of the, the women and the children there. But the most notable part of her production are these very, very detailed jewel tone depictions of the beadwork mm. uh, made by women in this community. And she was a real connoisseur of it and studied it very, very carefully. And indeed, before she left Arviat, um, she acquired through trade or purchase, we're not sure how, um, a number of major beadwork pieces that ended up residing in the Manitoba Museum. So, what we're able to do in this show is put uh, an artist like Atasiak, who was one of the mm. you know leading beadworkers in that community, one of her one of her works together with um, the Winifred Petchy Marsh watercolor of it. And you know, there's other places where we are able to see portraits of the women who were making these objects. So there's a real knitting together of the settler gaze. 
and the indigenous presence, you know, in, in a number of these. We also have a basket by Sophie Frank, who was a, a lifelong friend of Emily Carr's, together with Carr's portrait of Frank and, and Carr's self-portrait. There's a massive, I don't want to steal the thunder from the end of the show, but there's a massive gallery at the end of the show devoted to Emily Carr, and it has um, really in the middle of the space, uh, really uh, uh, presented with a lot of emphasis, a, a big selection of Coast Salish baskets that we were lucky enough to borrow mm. from the Royal Ontario Museum uh, in this kind of large, long, undulating table that kind of goes up and down and, and threads its way through the gallery space. But, you know, the baskets and the paintings of Carr really, like, are in a strong conversation with each other. And, of course, you know, the baskets speak of environmental knowledge mm. and history, mm. transmission, mm-hmm. Um and Emily Carr's paintings speak about her own experience of landscape, but they also speak about the brutality of resource extraction mm. in this period in British Columbia. So there's kind of the settler way of relating to the landscape and the indigenous way of relating to the landscape are kind of talking to each other in that room. Mm. And, you know, that's the final room in the show. It's, 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 it's breathtaking. And, you know, I think the meaning of it is, is deep for people now. I mean, the kind of way in sure. which... In, you know, Indigenous women, um, it has been explained to me that, you know, weaving the basket is the tip of the iceberg, that what you need to know is, you know, where the roots grow straight, mm-hmm. where the clay is right for bearing the roots to, to cure them and, and give them color, you know, that all the knowledge of harvesting right. and preparing, you know, is 90%, if not more, of making the basket. So, right. They're opposites, you know, but mm. they but they meet here in this show to 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 look at to look at each other and for people to be able to contemplate both. Sounds fascinating. What a great exhibit it sounds like, and that's on from September 10th until January 16th, I believe. Yes, great. So it's going to be with us all through the fall, yep. and you know there is there's just so much material here. There, you know, there are a number of other spectacular indigenous makers in the show, Elizabeth Cat Petrant from Bear Island to Mogami, mm. beautiful moss bag, um, and also a basket by her mother um, as well in the same room. So you get this idea of intergenerational knowledge um, being passed down. Um, I would add also um, uh, Bridget Ann Sack, who is a extraordinary uh, quill work basket maker, uh, Mi'kmaq from Nova Scotia, who's we have a beautiful selection uh, in the exhibition. You know, there's a lot of Indigenous content in the show, mm. and there's a lot of content of um, settler women who are engaging with this uh, with this material. And mm. and there's a lot of stuff in the wall labels too. I love wall labels because I love <laughs> to write them. But you know, Anne Savage who was a, a very, very important settler woman artist in Montreal. She taught for many years at Baron Bing High School. And then in the summertime, she'd make her own paintings. But she got a commission in 1927 to travel to the Skeena River and uh, paint the communities and the landscape of the Skeena River. I was just in that region of British Columbia this mm. summer. And it's, of course, an extraordinarily beautiful mm. part of our country. Mm-hmm. And... Um, she, you know, when she was there, she was there at the at the pleasure of Marius Barbo, who was the head of what was then called the Museum of Man, I believe, now the Museum of History. Mm. And she registers, you know, in her writing and her journals that she's offended by what she calls this, quote, silly little Barbo man. Um, 
And the reason she calls him that is that he's she sees that he's rude and pushy mm. with the indigenous people mm. in that you know in that community. Mm. It was uh, you know Git Meow and other communities that they were. Uh, visiting but you know she found him offensive there was a it, it was an intrinsic um kind of sensitivity that she had about how one might go about you know being invited to go back to the title of the show um i mean what's complex and interesting about the title of the show is you know it's called uninvited but of course all settler people were uninvited yes, here yes uh, but then also the women artists more generally were uninvited kind of to the high table of fame and fortune right. in canadian art yes so there's kind of rings within rings sure, here sure but you know it's super complex but um i think it'll be you know i think it'll be a very important show both for nudging people's understanding of of um, the kind of parallel tracks of indigenous and settler experience you know in uh, in this period which mm. was of course such a fraught one for indigenous people mm-hmm. uh, but also to really understand the force of female cre- creativity in this yeah. in this moment I mean you you walk through the show and you are blown down by the power of the work that these women made and the fact that their names have been you know kind of not in yeah. common parlance and you know for all this hundred years almost of times as they were making these works yeah. it's just extraordinary that that so many people will be discovering these women now and i should add you know there has been a lot of outstanding scholarly work done on these artists over the years but the fact is that museums you know and it's a fact that they were largely run by men mm. um would not devote proper resources to either the exhibitions in terms of gathering the works and incurring the cost of that or producing catalogs that were like full color and you know properly resourced for um you know i don't know the, the research required to really you know make a bigger book or be able to do a, a book that has more pages in it so obviously mm-hmm. more information can be included like most when there are monographic mm-hmm. Uh, shows on Canadian women artists, with the exception of Emily Carr, mm. where there's quite a bit, but with the exception of Emily Carr, you know, an artist like Anne Savage or Prudence Heward, brilliant, brilliant women, mm. and, you know, very, very slenderly represented in monographic um, exhibition catalogs just devoted to them. So, you know, wh- we know why this is, but, you know, the, the hope with this show is to basically... You know, I've been saying to our to our funders and to our contributors and everyone, we're building a battering ram. We're really simply just trying to create a seismic shift in terms of how we we understand the history of art in this country and the the country itself. And mm-hmm. I think that the presence of Indigenous women in this show is going to be a very powerful and engaging tool in that. Uh, I remember using the the term battering ram before from our conversation, and well, it's on it's on my mind. <laughs> I feel like a battering ram myself some days. <laughs> well, and you are describing a very, as you say, complex uh, presentation in this show. Yeah. So many levels to look at, so many levels to consider, Sarah. It sounds wonderful. Yes. I, I was thinking about your job, having to go through all of this stuff and look at yeah. it, and try to decide what makes it, what doesn't, and and even just looking at all these these fascinating pieces of work uh you must you must have some really wonderful moments um you know looking over all of this stuff but i guess also challenging moments as well in terms of trying to decide what will finally make it and and what won't yeah yeah well we had one real um uh 
late breaking development was a woman called Irene Sparks Drummond, who was a, a Afro-Canadian basket maker. She was uh, from um, a little community just outside of Halifax. And she was making baskets in this period in the 30s and 40s. We'd been looking and looking for a black Canadian woman in this period. And we were looking for a woman who was like a painter or a sculptor. We went high and low. And, and what ended up, you know, it was very important for us to have that reality represented in the exhibition, we ended up actually doing a, a, a major Denise Tomaso show, who's mm. was a, a, camp, a contemporary Caribbean Canadian artist. Who uh, that show was up for a little while longer, actually. Um, uh, at the same time as uninvited, in order to hold that space, you know, within the museum for for the creativity of Black women. Um, but we could not find anyone in the period because we were we were looking at painting and sculpture. We were not looking where we needed to look. Mm. Almost ninety percent of Black women in this period were in, in, engaged in domestic service, mm-hmm. and the other in in factory work or agriculture. And the the communities around Halifax, the Black women there, those communities largely migrated around the War of 1812 into Canada. Um, so, you know, the, the, it was quite a dense, and of course, Africville is very famous, but there are also a number of other communities, small communities, farming communities around Halifax that had, you know, a solid presence of um, uh, Black emigre families in, in them. And, you know, we ended up deciding at the last minute, you know, after the publication of the catalog, you know, all the gates were closed. The show was finished. And we found this woman and her story, and we've included her in the show. So, mm. you know, what's interesting is that her baskets are going to be shown in the same room with a, with a painting by Prudence Heward called Dark Girl. Mm. And Dark Girl is, is a nude of a, of a black woman um, painted by Prudence Heward. It's a very famous painting in the history of Canadian art, but deeply troubling because the woman's expression is one of kind of abject discomfort mm. and the ch- and the likelihood is that this woman was a servant in the household in mm. the Heward household mm-hmm. and was sort of pressed into duty as a model she was right. most likely not a professional model in Montreal right and and so you know she would have been you know making her livelihood in domestic service in the way that was very much the prevalent norm at that time and the basket you know, Irene Sparks Drummond, the baskets kind of speak to that because this is, an, an, you know, another tradition in which female creativity expressed itself, you know, in, in, this, in this idiom of basket making at the time because those, you know, the, the um, cha- financial challenges facing mm-hmm. black women and their families, I mean, of course, it was not likely that they would be going to art school. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we'd been looking in the wrong place mm-hmm. and, but we found her in time to put into the show and I nice. thought, well, I'm not going to leave it out just because the catalog's finished. Sure. You know, let's just be bold and, and, and do this and see how it feels. Yeah. And honestly, you know, we don't know how it's going to feel to see those baskets, yeah. uh, beautiful, dainty, gorgeous mathematical works of genius that they are. Um, in a room full of a uh, white woman and one black mm, nude. Um, mm, it, it could be, it could feel bad. It could feel right. important. It, right. We don't know. Yeah. I mean, these, you know, exhibitions are experiments right. and all we can do is provide all the information we can and put things out there for the public to chew on. And, and mm. that's kind of the approach we've taken all the way through the show is let's not decide how people are going to feel about this. 
Wow. Let's put all the evidence out there of what was happening in Canada with women artists in this time and let people think about it. Wow. Well, that's a lot for people to uh, consider, but a lot for people to look at. And uh, as you say, um, it's an exhibition that the McMichael has put together and, and Sarah yourself uh, curated and, and, and put together that people can go and see. But as you just said, it's an experiment. So people can be part yeah. of this experiment as well when they go to see the show. And that's running from September 10th uh, of this year until January 16th of 2022. You're listening to Moment of Truth on Element F. FM in Toronto and Ottawa. I'm your host, David Moses. My guest is Sarah Milroy. She's the chief curator at the McMichael Canadian Art Collection in Kleinberg, talking about uninvited Canadian women artists in the modern moment. And uh, that's one of the things going on at the the uh, Kleinberg uh, McMichael Collection. Uh, but there are other things going on as well. As Sarah, you mentioned one, and I think it's finishing up fairly soon. Um, it's Denise Tomasos. Yes. Yes. Who who died about eight years ago, but an extraordinary Canadian artist originally from Trinidad. Mm. And um, that show is on until mid-October, I believe. Right. I'm just yeah. checking October here. October 24th, I believe it is. I yes. Know. Yeah. Yeah. And that, yes. And that show is, is really spectacular. And what's wonderful is that while the show has been on, uh, I should say, too, that the Denise Tomasso show, our publication, has a, an essay in it by Essie Dukian, who many of your re- uh, listeners might know, a wonderful Victoria-based um, uh, Canadian author who agreed to, to write about Denise's work. She didn't know about her work, and, and we actually sent a small painting of Denise's out to live with her in Victoria while she wrote the essay, mm-hmm. and she's done a beautiful, beautiful job. But that that show, yeah, that show closes on October 24th. And one of the big works in it called Gore Island, if visitors come, you'll see it's a big black and white painting that's that's about eight feet tall. And God only knows how long it is. It's huge. Mm. And uh, we have just learned recently that 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 painting is going to the Whitney Biennial and will likely be acquired by the Whitney Museum. So, Mm. you know, Denise did not. You know, she was a professor at Rutgers and she'd gone to Yale. I mean, she had great Mm. success in her lifetime, Mm. but it seems like that career is finally, you know, truly catching fire. Mm. And um, we just wish she was here to to see it. But but her family is, her daughter is, you know, and uh, it's beautiful to be a part of that trajectory. Mm hmm. Wow, great. So people can catch that up until October 24th. There's this other one, which uh, seemed a little unassuming to me uh, until I went and looked at it and I found it really interesting. (laughs) You're talking about John Sasaki. I am. (laughs) (laughs) That is the sleeper hit of the summer. People are just loving that show. John Sasaki is a conceptual artist in Toronto in kind of, I guess, early mid-career, mid-career. And um, John John has a, a really extraordinary brain, and he always looks at things from a fresh perspective. And he started his career as a landscape painter, um, <laughs> studying at Mount Allison. And then he came to Toronto, and he his art took a turn into the more conceptual. But his idols in his early years had been the Group of Seven. So what John did was work with our conservator, Allison Douglas, to take bacterial and fungal culture swabs <laughs> from objects that we own at the McMichael, like the easels and paintbrushes and so on, and um, paint palettes that had been used by the Group of Seven and Tom Thompson. He swabbed them. He then grew cultures from them in in petri dishes, yes. and then photographed the blooms of those mm. um, 
those fungal and bacterial cultures in dishes. And weirdly and wonderfully, they kind of look like landscapes in a funny way. (laughs) And they are nature pictures of a different sort because, of course, you know, microbial life, Mm. you know, the, the miniature life we all know all too well right now is is part of nature as well. And so it's a kind of a riposte in a way to the group of seven, but it's really more a kind of a, an homage mm. to these artists that have been, you know, he's sort of making the Turin shroud out of these bits and pieces mm-hmm. that they left behind that we have in our holdings. Yeah. And the show is both kind of on some level, very funny, right. But also, you know, deeply poignant. And yeah. we're showing these photographs, which are big, they're large right. format okay. um, on the wall. And then the objects from which they were, um, you know, from which the bacterial cultures were taken are in the cases. So you can see all these things that the group of seven used, and then you can see what John Sasaki has made of them. And it's, it's just a marvelous show. We have it in our founder's lounge and um, people are just adoring it. Yeah. yeah it's a wonderful sounds, little show. And we're going to be touring it, it to various museums in Ontario after us to various right. places. Uh, uh, Tom Thompson gallery, uh, our gallery of Algoma, I think. And there's a couple of others that are, mm in the works so it'll be making the rounds of ontario so keep your eyes out for it okay now uh, we're, it, we're, we'll be with us for quite a while it's yeah. not going anywhere anytime soon okay now the other thing that i found very interesting by the way um with the uh, tom thompson one um i didn't realize that he wasn't a member of the group of seven no uh, yeah he was the he was the kind of the inspiration in a way i mean he died in Canoe Lake before the formation of the group. Mm. So his death really resonated with the, with the painters mm. that would become the group. Mm. They felt um, they were hugely impressed by his extraordinary gift because he was really, he was trained in commercial illustration, but really kind of taught himself how to make those oil sketches that he made, which mm. are incandescently beautiful mm. And, you know, then he sort of flares, he has four or five solid years of painting in this classic Thompson style, and then he dies. Mm. So, you know, and and his death was also, um, you know, kind of at the same time, there was a whole generation of young men that died Mm. at that time at war. Mm -hmm. So, there was a which took on this kind of elegiac summons, you know, to to others who were still alive to sort of take up the sword and do something for Canada. And I think that's what the group of seven Mm. um, really, really sought to do. And um, yeah, so he was kind of the on switch for the group of seven, but not the group of seven itself. Honorary member. We also have a a beautiful room of Tom Thompson's, by the way, if you come into the gallery and go up the ramp, there's a whole room of them. Okay. that are the cream of our collection of Thompsons, and they are spectacular. Nice. So, just before we finish up, what can people expect if they go? Uh, can they get in to see all of these things with an yep. entry fee? Yeah, we don't break it out. Okay. To, and you just can and buy your ticket online and come see us. Okay. I should mention, to have, we have uh, something, uh, it's a one work in particular, but it's going on for September 11th. Because, okay. of course, we're at the 20th yes. um, anniversary of 9-11. Yes. And it's a painting by a, a brilliant Canadian expatriate artist named Susanna Heller. Okay. And Susanna just died this spring, I believe it was. Mm. Yeah, this spring mm. in Brooklyn, where she lived for many, many years. But Susanna had had a studio on the 91st floor, I believe it was, at the World Trade Center um, prior to 9-11, obviously. Um, but she had painted many spectacular cityscapes of New York from that vantage point. 
And a couple of years later, when the planes hit the towers, I mean, Susanna was a, a live nerve end of a person anyway. Mm. So she mm. was deeply, deeply affected. But she also, the planes hit the tower exactly where her studio was. So she oh. had this incredibly intense emotional, psychological, and creative response mm. to, you know, to this event. Mm. And she would walk from Brooklyn across the Williamsburg Bridge and down to to the um, the zone every day with her sketchbook and make drawings, drawings, drawings. Her way of just dealing with the world was to draw and draw right, and draw right. and paint and paint and paint. And she made a suite of 9-11 works that are, I think, the most important, the impor- most important works I've seen by anyone hmm. painted of this event in world history. Wow. And we have a, a private collector in um, Ottawa has lent us a spectacular horizontal format work called Black Cloud Explosion Absence, which we are going to be putting up on the wall at the bottom of the entry ramp um, at the gallery on September 11, remembering 9-11, of course, um, but also remembering Susanna Heller, who was mm. just an extraordinary Canadian artist, wow. also that people should know more. So come yeah. and see that as well. All right, Sarah, you've given us so much to think about, so many things for people to go and see at McMichael uh, and some very important uh, things as well. Thank you once again for taking time to join us on the show. Of course, it's always my pleasure, David. All right, Sarah, you take care and we'll be talking again soon, I'm sure. I hope so. Okay, take care. (laughs) Bye-bye. Bye. Sarah Milroy is the chief curator at McMichael Canadian Art Collection in Kleinberg, and it's been a pleasure speaking with her about some of the fascinating and wonderful things upcoming and ongoing at the McMichael Canadian Art Collection. More right here on Moment of Truth right after this pause.